Hello everyone and welcome to our second episode Mu High Sessions where we discuss important global and local health and STEM related issues. Again, my name is Samyukta and this is my ta- this is my podcast host Tanya and hopefully you enjoy today's session. So before we begin, we'd like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are speaking on today, the Rwandrib and Burrawong people of the Kulin Nations. We pay respects to elders past, present and emerging to all First Nations people. In today's episode, we are in conversation with Dr. Alice Rhoda Badaling, an experienced and passionate tertiary lecturer and most researcher whose hands-on practical approach has led her to become an expert in her field of mental health and alcohol problems associated with the elderly and homeless populations. Dr. Alice, we'd like to cordially invite you to our podcast today and find out a little bit more about your journey. Hey, hi, Samyukta and Tanya, and hi, everybody. Um, it's very exciting to be able to um, to speak to you today. I'm, um, I'm glad that you said passionate because sometimes I have to stop myself from talking when I talk about this uh, area. So <laughs> any point you want to jump in and say, well, okay, that's enough of that answer, then, then we, can, we can move on to the next one. But, um, yeah, look, it's been a really interesting journey for me. I um, originally trained and worked as an orthoptist. Um, and I don't know if many people know what an orthoptist is, but it, it essentially is like a medical optometrist working in the hospital system. And uh, when I was working in that field, I was really drawn to um, supporting people that had um, issues around their brain functioning. So it was what was called neuro-ophthalmology, which is a really tongue-tire one. But um, I really um, gravitated toward that sort of area of of work because it kind of was this real... um, you know, people were in distress. I felt that I could really provide a, um, some some great support, not just in you know managing their eye problems, but just also sort of emotionally and um, um, and socially as well, providing them some opportunities to be able to sort of think of, of ways to do things differently in life. Um, so yeah, so then I. Um, but I got drawn into doing some more studying and so I eventually um, decided to take on um, studying a PhD um, at the time, which was a really complex area of ophthalmology, <coughs> excuse me, um, which once again involved the brain but also involved an eye disease called glaucoma, which some people may have heard about where the pressure builds up inside the eye um, and, and causes loss of vision. Um, anyway, I, I did that studying, but my life was sort of happening in the background. So I was having babies. I unfortunately lost a, a child as well soon after after he was born. And um, life was pretty crazy for me while I was trying to complete this PhD. So it became bigger than Ben Hur um, while I was doing all this studying. And um, eventually I, you know, popped the champagne and, yeah, I was really pleased that I finally passed that. That, that PhD and then I found I didn't really have a, a place where I fit in, fitted in so well in the eye world and I started to think about other ways that I could utilise my skills in other areas. And um, crazy enough, a person that I was working with um, at the Eye and Ear Hospital, which is where I was working with the eye stuff, um, came to work with this homeless organisation. She was a manager in this homeless organisation called Winteringham. Um, and, and people who are in Melbourne would be very much aware of, of Winteringham, um, which provides support for people who are older and homeless. And uh, they had this big research project they wanted to start up and they wondered if I would head up this research project. And little did I know that was going to become a 10-year 
journey uh, of um, applying for grants and, and, and seeing through two major projects. Um, and really hands-on, not just like a, an academic person sitting in an office and, and not having any um, real contact with real people. I was actually out there supporting people who were, um, you know, in different um, different forms of cognitive impairment. And, and the, the people that I really supported the most through this project were people that had alcohol-related brain injury. And, and these people were um, really marginalised. That's why they were homeless. They'd sort of lost all their social contacts and their, um, they continued to drink. So they had a lot of behaviours that were associated with that. Um, uh, their physical health was at a really, really low state. And they'd had lost all connections with sort of families and friends as well. So, <coughs> and in, into the hospitals a lot. So that's where I really, that's, I felt my passion was in that area and I could really um, apply myself with all those different aspects of the brain and the social side and the and sort of the counselling and support side and just applying my knowledge, academic knowledge, all within the one area. So um, I was really thriving um, through, through that project and, and that kind of just naturally evolved into where I'm working now, which is... Um, predominantly in education, but also in a bit of research around um, cognitive impairment in older age, but more around the social aspects of it um, and uh, and dementia as well. So, so, yeah, so that's what's led me to here today. Yeah, wow. Honestly, that sounds like an amazing journey so far. And you've mentioned that the recent line of your research is regarding um, ageing mental health dementia in the elderly. Um, and do you think there's an increasing concern in Australia's elderly population? And what psychological interventions or treatment would you think are currently useful for this type of condition? Okay, well, it's it's a broad area. Um, for one, a whole world, a whole global population is ageing. So, and Australia's population is ageing, which means that you know, in, in, in a decade's time, we're, we're going to have like 20% more older people than we have today. Mm. So we're really talking about a huge mm. increase in the demand for not only mental health services, aged care services, you know, and, you know, and all the different types of support that, that are, um, that are, you know, that come with that, you know, mm -hmm. that there's going to be, you know, healthcare and um, and and financial supports and um, and and aged care supports uh, as well as mental health supports. So, when you think about it that way, there's going to be an extra demand of mental health services for older people just because they're going to be more older people. But when yeah. we talk about mental health and older people, that you've got to um, keep in mind that there is a bit of a misunderstanding because quite often encompassed under the area of mental health is dementia, mm. um, which is an age-related condition. So, of course, you're going to have a high representation of people with dementia in the older age. Um, but in actual fact, dementia is not a true mental health as such because it's got a real medical, you know, real physiological changes that are happening in the brain, whereas a lot of other mental health problems um, don't have such a direct association. You can't do a test and take a blood test and say, yes, you've got schizophrenia um, mm. or do a brain scan, but you can with, with like the dementias so, um, and all the other Parkinson's disease and all these other sort of neurological or neuro neurodegenerative diseases. So, mm. um, 
So in a way, dementia shouldn't really be encompassed under that mm -hmm. um, umbrella of mental health. But in a way, it is the brain and the brain changes are affecting someone's functioning and behaviour. So that's why it sort of does get incorporated into, into mental health as well. So, um, yeah, but when you talk about treatments, then we're talking about two different categories of treatment. We're talking about people that... Um, uh, who have developed mental illness um, or had mental illness as in their youth, in their younger years, and, you know, developed either a severe mental illness, a severe depression or, or a psychotic um, condition. And, you know, that is probably, you know, over their life courses, sort of, you know, got bad, bad at times, been better at other times. Sometimes they've been able to use their own resources and their own resilience to sort of, you know, manage their condition and other times maybe they needed professional help to manage their condition mm. and just because they're older they've still got the mental illness so um you know the the treatments are just the same for an older person as they are for a younger person mm. um but what's really important is that there are a, a group of older people that are just developing um mental illnesses for the first time and, and that can be through what most people associate with ageing with some of those life changes such as grief and loss, um, loss of um, ability and functioning through uh, you know, arthritis and, and, and body changes, um, loss of work, you know, loss of you know, meaningful life roles. And, and you know, depression seems to be the really prominent um, impact of that as far as mental health. And, and that's something that can be modified through you know um, initiatives and through programs and through promotion and early recognition and um, and that's where something can be done in that space more preventatively or proactively rather mm. than the conventional treatments which will be there just as they are for a younger person you know just the standard you know drug treatments psychotherapies all the different types of of course, of yeah. So yeah. Um, to look on a more positive side, are there any particular interventions or resources um, currently that you really commend in saying that they're really effective in helping our um, communities and society now in providing them with the proper skills to equip them for the possible mental health problems they may face further down the track, like you were describing before? Is there anything that you really... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, that's true. Yeah, no, And I think I sort of touched on it a little bit. This is... The, the very um, strong philosophy behind um, interventions now is really looking at that life course approach, which is really those different aspects around your development right from childhood. Yeah. Um, the, the things that in your childhood developed um, influenced your res development of resistance and, and, and tolerance and acceptance um, that, that, you know, someone who's been nurtured and loved as a child and had opportunities and um, and resources available to them, their likelihood of developing a mental illness um, along their life journey is, is, is lessened mm -hmm. than someone that may have had less opportunity, less love, exposure to trauma, um, drugs and alcohol and all the other impacts that can happen along life course. So, mm. so I think that the, the most effective way that we as a society could prevent the older person from getting to a point where they've had this enduring lifelong mental illness is to try and be very proactive at an early stage with interventions 
geared at giving children the best opportunities in their in life to to yeah. ensure that they have that um, robustness and resilience and that they aren't prone to or at risk of developing mental illness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. And if I just want to connect it with, you know, the um, actual problem that we're having for the past year or so, obviously COVID-19, mm-hmm. um, the face of public health and the health of those of the vulnerable population has changed quite significantly. And I just wanted to ask with your insight, how would you describe the change in general mental health of the aging population since COVID? Um, look, I think, I think probably there's not a huge difference in the older population than the younger population in, in, in some aspects, particularly within the community. Yeah. Um, you know, older people still had the same opportunities to go out to shops and to, you know, to maybe meet one or two friends out of their home and, you know, all the restrictions that particularly that were heavier in Melbourne than in, in Victoria than they were in other states. But, you know, mm. I, I, I don't feel that <clears throat> because someone was older that they perhaps had any more um, <clears throat> vulnerability um, beyond yeah. what their normal vulnerabilities are, you know, apart, you know, not having the family connections and having um, loneliness and isolation as, a, as, a, as an influence in their life. Mm-hmm. Where it really became a problem is um, in residential aged care. Mm. And particularly people that do have, and, you know, so 80% of people living in residential aged care have some form of cognitive impairment. Yeah. Um, and, and so, therefore, when when they're in aged care, they were so um, isolated from their, uh, their broader networks apart from just the facility staff. And so there was a really high degree of isolation um, experienced by these people from, from family and friends that um, I think that really did have um, or has had an impact. And I know there's some early studies coming out now to show that um, Mm -hmm. the the rates of depression and and life purpose and um, life quality have really um, had an impact in in this population Mm -hmm. um, because of the strict um, restrictions that were placed on, you know, having visitors and, and not being able to go out and, um, and having real severe limitations on human rights as far as, you know, freedom of movement and, and socialisation. Mm-hmm. So you would say <laughs> that um, the pandemic last year that we've been going through, actually we still are um, enduring now, <laughs> didn't really raise any new issues in terms of the mental health of our ageing population, but more so highlighted and reinforced the problems that we already knew existed? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I think it uh, there would be, it'd be naive to say that you wouldn't expect that there'd be an increased yeah. incidence of some um, some mental health problems um, such as, you know, depression and anxiety but yeah. as a result of it. But, you know, I don't think it's going to be any more of an impact in the older population as it is in the younger population um, uh, just for that same thing. I mean, you know, some people, I think it's, it's wrong to think of older people as being different. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really, yeah, they're just, just through their ageing, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so you know, that they still have, you know, the same, you know, stressors. You know, we all have stressors or stresses in our life that are, Created by being exposed to certain situations, and 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 some of us do better than others because of yeah. you know, basically the resilience we have in us, the strategies we have with us to in us to cope, and our exposure to things in the past to 
you know, someone who's, for example, um, experienced grief and loss before, mm -hmm. um, handle it better when they when they have to face it again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas if it's the first time you experience it, it, it it's you know, you're, it's much more difficult to to cope and to manage. So. I mean, yeah, that, that a person at the end of their life, they probably had more opportunity to be exposed to yeah, those types of stresses. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that I think it's it's wrong to think that there's going to be something different just because Definitely, someone's yeah. over the age of you know, whatever, sixty five or seventy or eighty. Yeah, yeah of course. And I think you made a really important point there, like the perception of the general population of the elderly should not be perceived as anything different um they're just you know people growing old and <laughs> i don't think they're any special or wrong or anything so yeah that was a really good point um that was made yeah and so the only thing that's really different is the um is that other categories around dementia because that is a a terminal illness yeah so so someone who has dementia you know it's a different trajectory you know we're not talking about you can't rely on any resilience and resources if your if your brain is 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 um losing its functions you you can't combat that um so i mean you know that is on a negative note but i'm yeah. just saying that you know that is different you know that 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 disease is is something that really does um, increase exponentially, you know, over the age of, of, of 70 um, as far as its incidence and, and, you know, and it does have a profound effect not only on the person with the condition but, but particularly with their families and carers and support yeah. networks. And I think that's really yeah. important to acknowledge that. Um, you know, I, I, I come across every day, I mean, I'm teaching students around dementia and dementia care and, and a lot of them are themselves caring for um, parents um, or, or partners who have dementia and just hearing their stories about the stress that they're under, particularly as the dementia progresses and they lose that connection with the person that was, that, that they don't, the communication breaks down and then their physical um, functions break down and, and the person just reminisces about what used to be and and the the burden of care that someone needs to carry in supporting uh, a person who is gradually just wasting away through through such a horrible condition. Yeah, of course. And just to build upon that, so how do you think that we as individuals in our personal, with our personal peers, our families, in our communities, how can we better advocate for mental health or help combat the stigma that we just spoke about? Well, there's, there's one, two aspects. There's one about combating stigma and there's also really combating the actual conditions themselves. Yeah. Now, as much as we painted a really gloomy picture about the development of, you know, of conditions such as dementia, there, there are modifiable life, fact, life factors that really can make it influence the, the, the progression and the, and the onset of, of these diseases. So they're modifiable factors which go once again along the life course about um, education, keeping your brain active, physical exercise, keeping your body active, um, doing, uh, not smoking, not drinking, mm -hmm. um, eating a good balanced diet with lots of greens and, 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 and vegetables and healthy foods, all of those lifestyle factors that we've been hearing about through, you know, for other diseases, it's exactly the same when we're talking about your cognitive health as well. So I think if the message is going to be put out there about prevention and, and interventions, it's it's really about 
um, once again, going back to younger people and their lifestyle practices and their lifestyle choices yeah. and, and how that can influence someone into older age. And so we need our medical and health promotions, our government promotions into yeah. you know, encouraging you know, those positive lifestyle choices. Definitely, definitely. Alrighty, unfortunately, Dr. Alice, um, we have run out of time today. I honestly just want to sit here and pick your brain all the more. Because, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but again, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy, busy day to speak with us. I think speaking on behalf of Sam and myself, we definitely took so much out of this conversation and so will our listeners. We'd love to keep in touch with you yeah. and are excited to see more parts of your research and teaching soon. Yeah. Fabulous. And okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. I just much want to mention... Sorry, <laughs> I just want to mention, Dr. Ellis, that um, I really appreciated this podcast because um, my mom, she is a mental health um, nurse at Mercy. And I guess this podcast really helped connect the two together because she'll often mention how hard it is sometimes to look after them, but also to see their family members and how they deal with such, because it, it, it is an a third person thing like it's not only just mm-hmm. the patient itself it is the family and, and the community. Just putting it all to, yeah and the community and it's just putting it into perspective um really helped um widen my thinking and as tanya said i'd love to just sit down with you sometime and talk <laughs> for hours about <laughs> this topic the way you explain things is very comprehensive so yeah thank you so so much thank you. Thank you. Glad to help. And, and like I said, I really, I'm sorry, I didn't let you get a lot of questions or comments in edgeways, but once I get onto my no you know, bandwagon all, yeah. about no. you. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's really been a great opportunity. It's been lovely just speaking to you both and to your, uh, your community of listeners as well. Yeah, thank you so much. And yeah, see you guys. This is your host, Samyukta and Tanya signing off. Make sure you visit our new Instagram page at muhi.sessions and follow our Spotify link for even more podcasts coming soon. Thank you guys. Bye.